Ephesians chapter 3, verses 5 through 12. Paul writes, In former generations, the mystery of Christ was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, what's that mystery of Christ? The Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ, and to make everyone see what is plain the plan of the mystery that has been hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. Him. I don't think I need to do much to convince us that we live in a divisive world, right? There's, things are just divisive. People are at odds, and it does not help that it is an election season, which means people are even more divisive and even more at odds with one another. And we find our patience getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and we end up lashing out at people that we love. and. and Things are never easy uh, when the world around us uh, invites us into this struggle to turn against each other. And so there's conflict everywhere. Uh, one of the things that I am grateful for in this season was uh, the American Baptist churches of several different regions. There's about four regions, I believe. Um, there was American Baptists from Michigan, from Indiana, and Kentucky, and Minnesota, and I'm probably missing a few other places. Uh, that gathered together on Zoom, as you do in 2020. Uh, we gathered together online on Zoom to learn uh, about race and justice. And it was being led by Pastor Derwin of Transformation Church in Charlotte. Uh, he is probably, um, it, maybe it's a kind of up in the air of which one he's more well known for, whether it's in his role currently, or the fact that he used to play in the NFL, which gets you a certain level of of, of name recognition, but he used to play safety in the NFL, and he tells the story about the fact that he became a Christian while playing in the NFL, and so it's, you know, in his 20s that he comes to Christ and he enters into the church, and he was struck by the fact that the clubs that he had been a part of and his social life had been more diverse than the church that he got called into that the gospel that brings us together was not lived out as inclusively in church context as it was in the nightlife. And so he lamented that, and so it's a big part of his ministry to help foster churches that are multi-ethnic, that uh, show and celebrate the diversity of God's church. And so we talked about a lot of different issues and a lot of things going on in the world and a lot of the struggles, a lot of the struggles of trying to be multi-ethnic churches, uh, the reasons why things have been as divided as they are. 
Uh, but something that I think was apparent in these discussions is there's this assumption like some of those issues aren't central issues. It's like, well, why do we got to talk about these justice issues? And, and certainly we can talk about race, we can talk about gender, we can talk about all sorts of things in ways that we divide people based on the way that they were born, and we make insiders and outsiders. Uh, but our reading today and so much of the gospel is about how essential and how fully a part of the gospel, us learning how to live into God's diverse kingdom is to us. And so the mystery of Christ that Paul proclaims in this text today, which we sometimes maybe struggle to fully embrace and understand and comprehend in our certain time frame that we look from, the mystery of Christ that Gentiles and Jews are fellow heirs, members of the same body, shares in the same promise. Things we take for granted uh, that definitely we should not take for granted. If you can imagine for first century hearers, what is it to say that Jews and Gentiles are members of the same body and fellow heirs and sharers of the same promise? And if you can imagine, this isn't just a religious thing. We've kind of divided our world up into so many little boxes. It's not simply people of different kind of religious backgrounds are coming together. Uh, people looked different. People spoke different. Uh, people had different, you know, foods that they ate, all sorts of things. Like, it was a cultural thing. And if you were uh, a good uh, Jewish disciple of Jesus, you're going to struggle with, wait, how do I make sense of who Jesus was and, and this invitation to accept all these Gentiles? Because didn't God tell us these foods were unclean? Didn't God say we should wear this kind of clothes? Didn't God say we should celebrate this kind of certain day? And the amount of kind of mental transformation that has to happen to say, you know, us and the nations, Gentiles, the, the nations of the world, that everybody is being brought together in Christ in some mysterious way all of these dividing walls are coming down in Christ, and we are called together. And Peter and Paul and, and stories in the Gospels, they, they grasp that, and not easily, Peter and Paul and Acts have different reasons why they push back against God's call for this diverse new community. Uh, but they eventually come to understand it and accept it, but it's then challenging to get everyone else on board. Do you also see God's call going to all the nations that all are members and share in this promise together? And so you might imagine some of the questions that might have feelings to our own contexts of how we treat people in different groups. If you were a first century Jewish Christian, uh, would you go into the house of a Gentile Christian? Would you eat meals with them? That's part of the arguments and fights in, in Acts and, and Galatians. Would you um, eat the kind of food that they're going to make? Would you make them eat your food? Would you, would you uh, let one of your kids marry one of those Gentile Christians? All sorts of questions of, do I actually want to live out this vision that even though we have all this division, different ways of doing things, we, we maybe speak different languages, whatever it is, God is calling us all in mysterious way into this one body together. 
And so Paul uses that language in Galatians about in Christ there's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. And so in this series that we are walking into, we are going to talk about the kingdom of God. Uh, We often talk about the kingdom of God with a G there. Uh, And think about political power and God's rule and might. But almost every place we see in the Gospels, every time they talk about God's kingdom, they have to keep comparing it to other things and to things that don't feel like our political world. Uh, it's the person that finds value in the smallness of things. And this one little thing, it's, it's, a, it's a mustard seed that grows up from something small into something large. It's, it's all of these interesting metaphors and images. But God has a new people that God is bringing up out of everyone. That our kin, our family, our tribe is made up of people who are like me and who are not like me. And that there is a beauty in the image of Christ reconciling all to God and himself. And this is good news and hard news because it's never been easy. It's not like we suddenly struggle with how do I live out the diversity of God's kingdom in my life. First century Christians are arguing about this. They're having to have councils about this. And in Acts, we get that there are people who disagree, but it doesn't go into the full detail of here's exactly their speeches, here's the, here's the ways they protested this and refused to meet with people who were not like them. But we have always been in the midst of proclaiming this mystery and not quite yet fully living into that mystery. And yet, it is a central part of our calling. And here's Paul's calling. Paul talks about his mission here in Ephesians. Through God's grace, Paul is called to be a mission, a missionary, an apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations, to those who were not like Paul. And Paul, I love that he uses the language about God's grace. Uh, he knows he's not deserving of this title, of this function. You know, he's like, I, I know I was the least of the saints, right? He's like, I, I persecuted the church. I had terrible things to say about them. I did terrible things. And yet somehow God's going to use me to spread the good news of this gospel, the same one that I was resisting and hating and, and violent towards? Why, why am I a good candidate to go and bring this good news to the world? And Paul just says it's, it's God's grace. I, I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. And many of us are called to be proclaimers of gospel truth about things that we know we have not been perfect at. And that's a big part of the need for the church and the need for each of us to be able to name that we have not been perfect, that we are uh, full of living out incorrectly, living out sinfully the things that God doesn't want us to do. And so maybe uh, you've been prideful and you need to help talk about humility. Maybe you've been angry and you need to talk about gentleness. Maybe you've been uh, kind of biased and, and prejudiced and kind of divisive. And you need to talk about mending and healing. And there's something valuable in taking Paul's example of saying, I am, I'm not going to let you call me a hypocrite here. Like, I'm going to call myself out. I have not been the greatest of saints. But I know that God is calling me to speak into this. I need to speak into what God is doing in the world for each of us. And I think that 
his kind of humility here is also important, not just because he's, he's not trying to misrepresent himself, but he's trying to tell uh, the people that he's speaking to, I'm not better than you. I'm not superior to you. And how many people do we know that, you know, struggle with like being the missionary who, who thinks less than the people that you're ministering to, right? To think, oh, those people need us because they really need God, and, and of course I'm so much better and so much greater. And there's this kind of, um, in our culture, we kind of talk about this white savior complex of, I've got to go in and be the hero to save someone else's story because of course I get to be that. Um, and we don't see the humanity and the dignity and and the equality in Christ of that person across the table from us or across uh, the world from us. But Paul knows he is a co-heir. He is a member of the same body. He is a sharer in the promise with the people he's ministering to. He doesn't go to Ephesus thinking, I'm better than you. You should hear this good news. He's saying, we have good news You and I are co-heirs together. We are members of the same body. We are sharers of the same promise. And that is such a more healthy way to go into ministering into this, this beautiful, diverse kingdom that God is bringing about in the world. And so I, I want you to know that whether it's here when I'm speaking uh, with you now, if it's on the street, if it's on a Facebook wall or a Twitter post, when I share about what God is doing and what God's hope for is of the world, I recognize that I have not perfectly lived that out myself. And you might have seen it on, sometimes on Facebook posts, if, you're, if we're on Facebook friends, when somebody uh, kind of will push back on something about racial equality or things like that, I usually lead with, Here's how I've failed at this, and that's why I know prejudice still exists. Uh, here's how I've messed this up. That's how I know we still have work to do. I think there's something valuable to bringing that to the table, of recognizing we haven't lived these things out perfectly. And so Paul talks about his mission, but it's not just about his mission. Paul talks about the church's mission. Because we individually have our own responsibilities to ourselves and to God and to those around us. I got to take care of myself. But we have to like systematically create that kingdom of God, that that family of God into the world that is changing and transforming uh, the culture for the better. Not just, well, you know, I'm kind of doing all right on this, but how do we as a church bring about God's Uh, beautiful vision for the world in more visible and more loving ways. And I love Paul says it this way. Through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety. I love that kind of language, you know. The wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. I don't know about you, but that that took a weird term for, for me of like, wait, I thought I know where Paul, where Paul was going to go there. So through the church, the wisdom of God is going to be made known, and you would assume to our neighbors or to those in our churches who haven't fully 
embraced it yet, or, you know, some like human person. But Paul goes bigger, and he goes cosmic, he goes global. He, he says that the church is supposed to make known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's a pretty lofty view of the church, that we're not just meant to make something known to our neighbors, but that there isn't a domain, there isn't a place that isn't supposed to see in us the revelation of what God is doing in the world. And I think part of the maybe the tweak or the challenge of how do I understand this, that the church is supposed to make known uh, to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. We tend to think about making known simply on our verbal words, right? If I want to make something known, maybe you think the street preacher just saying stuff out into into the public square, or maybe it's, you know, having the right tweet, maybe having the right sentence to to say, But making it known is not just verbal. It is lived. It is experienced. Like, what is it for the church to make it known because you can't help but see the church living out the gospel? We we definitely need words, but how do we make things known by living it, not just talking about it? And so Paul gives us this grand scheme that there's this cosmic theater that humans are in the middle of of, of acting things out and, and even this cosmic audience and in his language elsewhere in Romans, the creation is groaning and waiting for the children of God to be revealed. That the whole system longs to be changed. That the whole system longs for us to treat each other with love and dignity and goodness instead of with violence Everything longs for that moment. And it's the church's role to make that gospel lived out and known so that even in the highest courts, that everyone sees what the gospel is at work in the world. And and it's not that the church is the power that causes it. He he talks about Christ's power and Christ's riches. Uh, But the church is supposed to live that out so everyone might see it and might know it. I love this quote. Um, Marcus Barth's commentary on Ephesians had a quote about this that I just want to read to you. He says, The church is to be an example to all creation. Following this verse, the church would unduly limit her task if she cared only for the souls of men or only for an increase in membership. And I'll pause his quote there. How, how low our expectations or our goals are if we preach the gospel so we might just simply have uh, some added a few members here or there. Of, it's beyond just that small number change. It's that the whole system of the world might change. He goes on here. Rather, the church has to be a sign and a proof of a change that affects the institutions and structures Patterns and spans of the bodily and spiritual, the social and individual existence of all people. He goes on, the power of filling, subjugating, and dominating all things, including these powers, is reserved to God and Christ alone, but the function of demonstrating God's dominion and love is entrusted to the church. We have a calling 
to make known not only in our personal lives, but in the systems and in the structures and the ways we do things to make known to all people. Everyone is loved and has the invitation to be co-heirs and shares in Christ's promises. And so Christ, in Christ, all of those barriers are broken down. No longer Jew or Gentile, no longer slave or free, male and female. But it is up to the church to live out that promise, to live out that hope. And it's not just enough to talk about it, but we are called to live it out. And so I want to talk about two polar opposite stories of living out that gospel calling. The first one, I don't want you to misunderstand me or, or, or don't lose this part. This is the terrible example. <laughs> this is not how you live out Christ's calling. You can imagine, and I'm sure you can see in your, in your mind's eye, uh, the picture of the KKK burning crosses. Right? One image of what is God's vision for the world. The KKK's vision of burning crosses is most uh, essentially evil. Uh, it is anti-Christ's message. You might not know where that came from, this imagery. Uh, it's, it's an example that's based off of medieval Europe, uh, where tribes like the, uh, the Scottish, when you don't have like you don't have lights that you can easily do, or whatever, you'd have these hillsides in which they would be like signal fires of um, different kinds of reasons, like defiance against military rivals. So like, hey, don't come and attack us. We have this, this collection of people who will stand up against you. It's a call to get allied troops to come and protect you against outside invaders. And that, that time in which people and countries were more homogenous, if you think about the Scottish in the medieval times, uh, there was less diversity of people. And so that image became a rallying cry of later uh, racist groups like the KKK, which actually didn't get it just from a history book. It was a, a racist movie uh, that took this imagery and used it into this type of scenario, which then inspired people across the United States uh, and then worldwide to use a burning cross to tell people, this neighborhood, you are not welcome unless you look like me. There are enemies here. You don't want to join this neighborhood. You don't want to be here. And that image is so counter and contrary to the message of the gospel and is so hateful. And we kind of sometimes push that as like it's just only things in the past. That mentality still exists. People still use our faith to harm people, to hurt, to, to divide. Um, and, and this is still a story in the past, but it's not 19-teens. Uh, but I can't help but think about it. When I was growing up, my parents would tell this story. Um, my dad was a retail store manager. They'd move to new sites each time. You know, a new branch would open up. You'd move to a new place. So they moved everywhere from, like, Iowa to Orlando, Florida. Well, one stop... Uh, from 1979 to 81, they were in uh, Amory, Mississippi. And in that town, there really, literally, apparently was just train tracks in which if you were on one side of it, you were white. If you were on the other side, you were not. 
Uh, my dad had an employee at the store that he invited over to their house uh, to have a dinner. And that employee had to deny him and said, I appreciate it, but I don't want you to get into any trouble. I, 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 I'm grateful, but I, I don't want to bring anything on you. So I, I have to say no. In their neighborhood, there was a foundation of a house that had been burned down. And the reason was a black family had walked into this house to look at potentially buying the house. And so someone burned the house down to send the message of who is welcome and who is not welcome. We live in a world in which that hate and that vision still exists. There are still those who profess Christ that still have this hate. It's not just a outside the church issue. There are still those who see uh, very dimly. And that pain still exists. You know, just think about for my own family, like people still remember the 80s, right? <laughs> We're not that far removed. And that's, there are so many stories that are recent. Think about black churches that have been burned to the ground and things like that. The, this pain is still real. And that's the vision of the world uh, that evil forces move on to the world. But the vision of Christ is so much greater, so much better, so much more diverse. So I want to tell you a second story. I don't want it to leave you in the pain story. Uh, it, you might know Bishop Michael Curry. He is a African-American um, bishop in the Episcopal Church. He is the head of the American Episcopal Church, the first black bishop head of the Episcopal Church. He tells a story, his, his grandfather was a Baptist pastor, uh, his, his father was becoming a Baptist pastor, but he ended up moving into the Episcopal Church, and he was, you know, why might that be? And so he tells the story uh, in the 1940s about how his mother and father were starting to date, and his mother was Episcopalian, and his dad was studying to be a Baptist pastor, and what moved his dad into the Episcopal Church in that time? They went to a church in Ohio, which was predominantly white. And, you know, his, his dad is watching all of this service stuff that feels a little bit different than what he's used to. But it comes time for communion. And in the Episcopal Church, you know, you, you get your piece of bread, but you'd also drink from the same cup. And so in the 1940s, his, his, Curry's father is looking and wondering, what's going to happen here as we all go up to take this common communion cup? And so he watches, and his, his girlfriend... Bishop Michael Curry's mom goes and drinks from the cup. The next white family that comes after drinks from the cup. Not to take for granted in eras in which water fountains were separated, where you couldn't necessarily eat together and things like that. And so Bishop Curry's father said, quote, any church where blacks and whites drink from the same cup knows something about the gospel of Jesus that I want to be a part of. How powerful for his dad to see this experience of the church can be so much greater than the world that I see every day. And how beautiful it is when we live out God's calling well and it wasn't going to be lived out perfectly. I'm sure his dad had plenty of stories to share and tell about how we, we fell short. 
But in that moment, it was this close, thin place where God was real and present and people were being real and present to saying yes to what God might do in the world. And so we know that living this out isn't easy, but it is good news. It wasn't easy to proclaim unity in that 1940s environment. It's not always easy to proclaim it in this current one. And Paul never had it easy. I mean, read every gospel, I mean, read every epistle that he writes, read the book of Acts. He is being pushed out of places by people who are saying, this isn't how you live out the way God wants the world to be. But Paul persists because he knows the mission God has for him. Even the least among the saints has that mission. And so I hope we all might be called into that same mission work that started 2,000 years ago, the kingdom of God, that all might be brought together as co-heirs and sharers of the promise. In this series, which will take us up until we get towards Advent, I'm going to invite each of you to spend time intentionally listening to what God might be calling in your heart and growing in you. I'm going to be having uh, weekday devotions, which will be on their website, be on Facebook, where we're going to just walk through Luke chapter 6. And in the midst of all the political ads and all the division and fights, I'm just wondering what it would look like if we were intentional about trying to grow with God in the season instead of letting the outside forces move us towards hate, towards violence. And so each day of the week, I'm just going to be reading a verse or a few verses from Luke chapter 6 and inviting you to think about what God might be speaking to you about in this time. But I, I just don't want us to take it for granted and just say, yep, I'm going to be more divisive in this season. I'm going to love a little bit less. I'm, I'm not going to be patient as much. What is it to actually try to live out God's mission in the midst of trying times? So I want you to hear the last two verses from Paul in words of encouragement. This, this mystery, this gospel, was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. We have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. Be bold in living out the good news of the gospel. Be confident in the faithfulness of our Lord no matter what dangers might be present, no matter what divisions you might feel. What would it look like if we all lived out this gospel? How might we make it known even to the heavenly courts? Would you pray with me? God, we are humbled by your grace. I know that there are those of us who are praying to you right now who know that your grace is great because we have often failed you. We have often fallen short of your hope and your, your calling for our lives. So even the least among your faithful, we all experience your grace. And so we are grateful for that. Lord, I ask that we would not be complacent about that grace, that we would have hearts on fire for your gospel, 
for your healing message of love. Lord, help us to be bold and confident and faithful into your message that reconciles all of the world back to you, no matter how much we've been at odds with your mission in this world. Jesus, it's in your name that I pray.